You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. You, you watched it live? Wow. <laughs> that, is, that is hardcore, Linda. That is impressive. Um, I, saw, I saw bits and pieces on the news as it recounted that wedding a couple of years back and um, it was a joyous time for that nation as they celebrated young royalty getting married, and they threw quite the pomp and circumstance for that wedding. It was, I don't even know how much money it cost, but that was a lot of white horses with a lot of gold-gilded things and a nice carriage they only bring out for the weddings. That's a great way to welcome royalty into the family. It's a great way to celebrate royalty coming into town. And today we're going to look at a passage in Scripture that talks about royalty, talks about royalty coming into town, and it doesn't look anything like that example of pomp and circumstance. In fact, it's rather quite the opposite this morning. So if you would flip to your scriptures, um, Luke 19 is where we're going to be. Just stick your finger in there, and we'll get to that passage in just a moment. We have up to this point in our sermon series, Intentional, been looking at the intentionality of Jesus. Um, Jesus intentionally coming to earth, wrapping himself in the flesh, intentionally healing people, intentionally feeding people, intentionally um, doing all kinds of miracles so that we can see his royalty, so that we can see he intentionally cares for us and he's intentionally walking one long path from his birth to his death on the cross in Jerusalem. Palm Sunday is the day that symbolizes the day that he has walked all of his path of ministry and he is now entering the city gates the city gates where he knows he will not leave from except on the cross. And so this is an important day for Jesus. And, uh, and our hope is that we would uh, have the intentionality that Jesus has, right? That we would walk towards the cross in our own lives, intentionally forsaking things that we need to forsake, carrying our cross, intentionally bringing healing to people that we can, intentionally praying for people, intentionally feeding people, intentionally meeting needs like Jesus did for us. See, Jesus, he um, walked through cities, he walked through towns, he walked through rivers, he walked by rivers, he walked by wells, he did all kinds of things, all while calling people to be intentional with him. He called his disciples, he called other people, a lot of it was, come and see what I do, and then after you see what I do, why don't you come do it with me? And um, as Jesus walked, and he was tempted, and he resisted temptation, and um, we get the hope that we, too, can intentionally resist temptation. And then he intentionally fed people, and we get the idea that it doesn't matter how great the need is, we, too, with Jesus' help, can intentionally meet ministry needs. And then we get the idea that as Jesus healed people, um, we, too, can intentionally lay hands on people and pray for their healing from illness, from emotional distress, from broken relationships, that we, too, are called to live this life. And we also know this, that... Jesus explains that he is on an intentional path. And if we are to intentionally follow Jesus, then we are to put him as the primary relationship in our life. We are to intentionally choose him over all other things. We are to intentionally say he is our king, and we are to take up our cross after him and follow. So we are to do as he does. And this morning, as we reflect upon his last intentional trip to Jerusalem, where he walked the the road, the Mount of Olives, into Jerusalem, down from the hill, into the city, we're going to see that Jesus is intentionally 
king. He intentionally comes in on a donkey to symbolize his royalty, something that is unique and strange and unheard of. And maybe it's not unheard of because it's in the scriptures. Old Testament is full of prophecy that talks about the king that would come on the donkey, uh, set apart from all other kings. And as we study the Old Testament this morning, side by side with the New Testament passage, we're going to see that this donkey was very intentional. It wasn't just something that Jesus said, I need something to ride on. Would you find me anything, white horse preferably, something very bold and majestic? No, Jesus said specifically, I want a donkey that has never been ridden before. That's how I'm going to announce my kingship. But we bust into the scriptures here this morning. We need to see that Jesus does three things. He has three roles in scripture, prophet, priest, and king. These are the three things that Jesus does for us in Scripture. And I want to just briefly go over prophet and priest before we dive into king so that we fully understand Jesus' ministry. Um, Prophet, here's the little, you know, sign for you so you remember prophet, little call-out symbol. A prophet is a person who is courageous, right? You read the Old Testament prophets. Um, They're bold. They preach and they proclaim and they speak the truth and the word of God, right? They speak the will of God to people who are stubborn and hard-hearted and don't listen. A prophet is someone who is very confrontational, right? Have you ever read the prophets in the Old Testament? They walked right up to kings and leaders of nations and said, God's going to smite your nation if you don't turn around. Could you imagine walking up to a king in today's day and age or a leader of a nation and saying, "Uh, God's going to kill your entire country if you don't change and submit to him? That would probably take some guts, some courage. Prophets did that. They had courage. Now, Jesus comes to us as a prophet, Scripture says. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses, who was a great prophet, prophesied one day that a greater prophet would come. And that prophet would supersede Moses' ministry. And then in Acts chapter 3, Jesus quoted that same passage of Deuteronomy 18. He read it out loud in the temple so that all people would know that Jesus was not just man and that he was not just a good guy, but that he was God became man, the greatest prophet that ever would be. The Old Testament prophets were known by the phrase, thus says the Lord. That's how you knew a prophet was speaking. Thus says the Lord, such and such and such and such, whatever God had for the people. Um, The word of the Lord says to you is another phrasing of that, and it's recorded 221 times in the prophets section of the scripture. So much so was it said that when the people heard it, they just knew instinctively this is a message from God. Uh, So if you heard, thus said the Lord, you're like, the next sentence that follows is God's command for me. Whatever follows is something I need to do because it comes not from this man, but it comes directly from God to me. Now, when Jesus says he's the prophet, he doesn't say, thus says the Lord. When he speaks from God, he just says this, I tell you the truth, because he's the greatest prophet. He is the word of God made man. And he, in the book of John, the gospel of John says this 50 times, I tell you the truth. That's a short gospel. I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. I am the way. I tell you the truth. No one should come to the Father except through me. I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. He's simply speaking the truth about God to us. And he spoke it as one with authority. He spoke of his own authority. And he speaks from God's authority because Jesus is a prophet. The greatest prophet from God to us. He speaks with divine authority. But he's not just prophet. He's also priest, right? He speaks the word of truth to us. 
but he also binds our wounds. He comes as a loving, humble, merciful, kind priest who serves us. See, the Old Testament priest was one who meditates, um, mediates, intercedes for God and man. The priest was the one who walked into the Holy of Holies and offered the sacrifice to the Lord. The high priest was the one who entered into the veil with the rope tied around his foot with a bell on it. Because if he wasn't pure himself and he walked into the Holy of Holies, smited right then and there. Because you had to be holy before God. So the priests were the ones who risked their life to intercede for the people in the Old Testament. The high priest would offer sacrifices because the penalty of sin is death. And so, offering sacrifices was part of the system. But Jesus, coming as the high priest, both man and God, he reconnects us because he tore the veil between the Holy of Holies and mankind. He entered in as the sacrifice and said, I am the sacrifice, Lord, and he died for our sins. He is the high priest who is the ultimate sacrifice. In Hebrews, it says this, Jesus appeared once and for all at the end of all ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. He is the high priest, the best priest, the only priest today who offered the sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who was slain. He is both prophet, bringing us the word of God that says, I tell you the truth, there is only one way to heaven, and it's through the Lamb of God. And I tell you the truth, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's the hope that we have. He's the one who laid his life down. But he's not just a priest who serves you through his death. And he's not just a prophet who tells you to change the way you're living. He's a king because he's alive and well. So this morning when we look at king, we look at what that means. A king is someone who is above the other people. A king is someone who has subjects who are obedient to him. A king demands obedience and loyalty. A king reigns over everything in his kingdom. So we see Jesus as prophet, and he speaks to us. Hard words sometimes, words of conviction, words of, you need to change this. And as a priest, he comes alongside of us as our friend and our encourager, and he says, I know that I'm telling you to change something, and I know that this thing is difficult in your life, but I'm going to be here and walk you through it, and I'm going to encourage you, and I've paved the way through my sacrifice that... You can succeed in these areas and have victory in me. He's encouraging. But as king, his rule is over everything in our life, which means that there's nothing that we have or do or say that should not be submitted to Christ. And that's what we're going to read today, that Jesus is our king. And in all things that he does, he fulfills the Old Testament prophecies about him. So if you will stand with me this morning, we're going to read the kingship passage It's uh, found in Luke 19, verses 28 through 44, and this is the passage of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And he drew near to Bethphage, near Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet. And he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, and when you enter, you will find a colt, and he will be tied up. And no one has ever ridden on this one yet. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. And so those who were sent away found it just as it had been told to them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying our colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And 
they threw their coats on the colt, and Jesus sat on it. And they rode along, and they spread their cloaks on the road in front of him. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees were in the crowd. They said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these are silent, the very stones are going to cry out. And then when he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up barricades around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the day of your visitation. And this is the word of the Lord this morning. You may be seated. Triumphal entry. In verses, um, in verses 9 through uh, 36, we see the portion of the story that most people are familiar with, right? Um, the whole Jesus is coming, he needs the donkey, sends his disciples to get the donkey. They come back with the donkey, he rides on the donkey, okay? This is the donkey portion of the story. Um, see, God's uh, good kings, the God king, Jesus, he knows what's going on in his kingdom because it's his kingdom. And he was wrapping up his travels at this point and he approached a city called Bethany on the Mount of Olives and if you don't know, Bethany was the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So he'd hung out there a lot. He had good friends in this city. He knew the people, small town. Um, and before arriving in Bethany, he sent two of his disciples to town to get the donkey. Um, he said, listen, I need you to go to town on this certain post. You're going to see a young donkey tied up. I need you to go untie the donkey and bring it here. Um, and uh, his disciples were like, okay. So they went to town. They found the donkey. They untied it. And the people who owned the donkey said, um, uh, what are you doing with my donkey? Like this, the equivalent today would be like you're in church, and you go out from church, and you see two people, and they're like slim-jimming your car open, okay? And, uh, and you're like, uh, what are you doing with my car? You're like, the Lord has need of it. Okay, go for it. I mean, that's the reality, right? Because donkeys back then were the cars of today, okay? So a donkey was the beast of burden. It's how they got the groceries from, you know, the market to the house. It's how they carried their children. It's how they plowed the fields. It's how they got to work. The donkey was like their Mercedes, okay, or their Ford, um, their Ford F-150 or, you know, whatever truck you like. That was their donkey. So imagine you're the disciples and you go and you're basically stealing a donkey because the Lord told you to steal a donkey, the people come out and are like, why are you stealing my donkey? The Lord has need of it. Oh, okay, go ahead and take my donkey. Take my most valuable possession because Jesus needs it. There was this understanding in their hearts that, well, if the Lord needs it, then obviously he needs it more than I do. He should take it. That's a lesson we could stop right there and just say, good sermon. Um, if the Lord needs it, we should give it to him. But the, the disciples took the donkey back to Jesus. A few things of note. Jesus calls himself Lord in this passage, right? One of the few times in Scripture that he clearly calls himself God. It's a kingship title he ascribed to himself. Secondly, the disciples recognized it. They say, he is Lord. The Lord needs it. They're recognizing that Jesus is Lord. Thirdly, the owners of the donkey submitted to the Lord's request because they realized he is the Lord. 
early in this passage, before even people shout Hosanna to the king, it's established that Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is king, then he rules over all of your life, which means your finances, your marriages, your thoughts, your actions, your car, your donkey, if you have one. Um, he owns everything. The man who owned the donkey realized that the Lord was king and owned the donkey, which is why he had no problem saying, go take my donkey. He submitted all his belongings to the king, even though that donkey was a prized possession. So they took it back to Jesus, and um, before they could sit Jesus on the donkey, they took their coats off, a few of the disciples, and they put their coats on the donkey to be like a, like a saddle, because they didn't have a saddle for the donkey. It had never been ridden before. Um, and, and they didn't just put it on the donkey, but they put their coats on the ground in front of the donkey, which seems kind of weird, right? And I need to give you some background on this, because how many coats do you all have in your closet? Just, just estimate. How many coats do you all have? I think, what, we, four, yeah, too many, right? You got, you got the coats for the rain, and you've got the coats for the cold, and you've got the, like, nice weather coats just because you need an extra layer. And then you've got the ones that kind of all combine into one, like, mega coat, so we've got all these coats that fill our closets. What we need to know about this day and age is they had one thin coat. It was their cloak. And it was kind of their thing. And the things about their coats in that day was they didn't have one for rainy weather, and they didn't have one for sunny weather, and they didn't have one for cold weather. They had one. It was a very valuable possession, just like that donkey was. So that coat was their shelter from the sun when it got really hot, so they didn't get sunburned. And it was their shelter from the wind and the rain when the weather was bad, so their skin wasn't you know, exposed to the elements. At night, if they were in between cities or they were somewhere where they didn't have housing, they threw it over like a branch or something and made like a Boy Scout tent, okay? And that was their shelter. Their coat was very important to them for their survival day to day. And what they were doing is saying, Jesus, we value you so much. We want to give you the very most important things that we have. Take our coat and sit on it. It's yours. It's your saddle. Take our coat, not even your donkey, O king, should stand on normal ground. We want you to stand on the most valuable thing that we have. We don't have money. We don't have red carpet to roll out for you. We'll give you the next best thing, our coat, our most valuable possession, so that your royal donkey can walk on red carpet, as it were. I mean, did you, you saw that video of the, the royalty, right? They rolled out the red carpet. There was all these. They, they didn't have that back in that day. They gave what they had, the most valuable possessions they had, and then, Scripture says, as Jesus was walking, I kind of get this mental image that um, the coats that the donkey walked on were running out, and the disciples were like, he can't walk on ground. So they ran behind and grabbed their coats and threw them back in front of the donkey. Time and time again, and there was this commotion because they were celebrating Jesus. He's king. And more and more people started coming, throwing their coats on the ground. But some people didn't have coats, so they started looking around, what can we throw on the ground so that this royal man doesn't have to walk on common, dirty ground? So they looked around, and they're on the Mount of Olives. What grows on the Mount of Olives? Olive trees and palm trees. So they said, well, let's do the next best thing. Someone get out your pocket knife. And they started cutting down branch after branch after branch, grabbing what they had, what the Lord provided to throw down on the ground in front of Jesus and his donkey so that Jesus had this path of lush, green, royal carpet to walk on. They gave what they had to celebrate Jesus. And um, it's the most exciting thing you'd ever see, right? <clears throat> A stinky donkey, never been ridden before, 
probably a little bit unruly, making a lot of donkey noises. You guys ever heard a donkey bray? Not the most beautiful sound. You've got a stinky donkey. You've got a crowd making lots of noise. Crowd hasn't showered in a while. They're kind of stinky. Jesus, well, he was one of them. He probably hadn't showered in a while, and he was probably kind of stinky. So you had this whole big crowd of people who've been in the desert, in the wilderness, doing ministry. They're stinky, and they're shouting praises to Christ, who's sitting on a donkey. And it creates this huge commotion in the city. It caused so much excitement because the people of Israel were seeing something that they'd been waiting for for a long time. This stinky donkey, stinky crowd yelling praises to Jesus was something that the Old Testament had prepared the people of Israel for. It's something that had been prophesied about and predicted that one day a king would come, seated on a donkey, walking into Jerusalem. And when that day came, the people couldn't contain their excitement. Centuries they have been waiting for this. And this is the prophecy that God gave them in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You think it was an accident that Jesus said, bring me the colt of a donkey, the one that's tied up in that town, the one that's never been ridden before, the one I'm going to ride into town on because... If people are paying attention and they've read the scriptures, they will know that I am king because of the donkey. Not because I'm saying it, not because of pomp and circumstance, but because God ordained it to be this way. It was the moment in history that all of Israel had been waiting for. And they just couldn't contain their excitement. A crowd was growing. And so we get to 37 through 40 here. And this is, uh, as he was drawing near, he was on the way down the Mount of Olives a multitude of disciples began to rejoice. This is like hundreds and hundreds of people began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the mighty works that they'd seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And this is when the Pharisees said, they are too loud. This is too much commotion. Pharisees are the buzzkill, right? Like they just didn't understand a good time when they saw it. There's this great overflowing of joy among the people and the disciples that they started shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're waving palm branches and they're doing what the kids did this morning because they recognized the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. And then they chose to quote scripture back to celebrate. God fulfilled scripture. Let's quote scripture back. Psalm 18 is what they're quoting. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So they recognized his kingship and they sang a hymn. They sang praises to God from scripture. And it was this beautiful, spontaneous mountaintop worship experience. It was like church, like flash mobbed on the top of the mountain, okay? And everything wonderful worship was going on. And uh, and those who didn't have coats, they laid their branches down and there was this great worship going on. Um, And so we have this beautiful hindsight, though. We have this great mental image of Jesus on the king, on the donkey as king, and the people are celebrating and worshiping, and they're singing to him a psalm. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Bless him from the house of the Lord. But do you know the next verse in that psalm? Psalm 1826 is blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Psalm 1827, the Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. 
That's such a beautiful continuation, right? The Lord is the light, and he's come to shine upon us. The psalmist tell us that the light came, that he came and he's king. But um, he also came with a purpose, right? Psalm 18, 27 continues. Um, the Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. So bind the festival sacrifice with cords and take it to the altar. They're singing a song to God, praising him on this mountaintop. And it's a song that says, you are king, Jesus. And now bind the festival sacrifice and take him to the altar. And what was Jesus doing? He was that festival sacrifice. He was entering Jerusalem at the festival time. And he was willingly going to be bound as the sacrifice. To be led to the cross and slaughtered like a sheep. That is an amazing work of scripture, don't you think? Do you think they understood the psalm that they were singing? I don't think they sang, bind the festival sacrifice, yay Jesus, because they didn't understand that part yet. They just knew that he was king. But we have the hindsight when we read that psalm. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festival sacrifice and take it to the altar. That's kind of intense for a day of celebration. You know, it's, a, it's only a few days before that same crowd would change their attitude. That crowd that's saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is the same crowd who says, bind that festival sacrifice and take him to the altar. Crucify him. Crucify him. That's what they shouted a couple days later, finishing out that psalm. But as they were celebrating... Before they got to the festival sacrifice part, as they were celebrating, they got very loud. And the religious leaders of the day saddled up next to Jesus, and no doubt they were writing something a little more impressive than Jesus. Um, they saddled up next to him and they said, Jesus, rebuke your followers. This is too Pentecostal for us. This is too spontaneous. This is too, I don't know if we can handle this kind of worship service. And... Um, Perhaps they were just conservative worship leaders who didn't believe that hands should be raised. Perhaps these, um, uh, these folks didn't believe that you should cut down a tree and wave it in celebration of a king passing by. Perhaps they thought that celebration should be um, sitting quietly, reciting prayers in your mind, nice and orderly. Either way, they rebuked Jesus, and his response was this. Listen, if my disciples are silent, then the rocks are going to cry out, which frankly would have been even a more... Um, unusual worship service and the uh i think the religious leaders realized we'll just back off because it's okay that people cry out but we're not sure we want to see rocks cry out we couldn't explain that away we'll just let the people praise god but jesus was making a point when he said that that when a king enters a kingdom and jesus is king over all creation then everything that is subject to him gives praise Scripture says that over and over and over again. The mountains will give him praise. The oceans will give him praise. The very wind in the air gives God praise. The rocks, the people. And he has authority over all of these, so all of them give him praise. So if the people are silent, the rest of creation will join in. And frankly, I would rather me give praise to God than let rocks do it. You know, and, and these people understood that. Now we get to... The second portion of this passage, this is when Jesus weeps. 
not exactly what you picture when you see a king entering a town. You, don't, you think royal pomp and circumstance and celebration, and you don't think the king is going to stop and weep um, on the day that he enters uh, for kind of his coronation. There are several places on the Mount of Olives um, that give an excellent view of Jerusalem. Um, and Jesus probably reached one of these points. This is a view from the Mount of Olives, the trail down to Jerusalem. Um, Mount of Olives is a big cemetery right here now. And then the trail that takes you all the way to Jerusalem. And Jesus was somewhere here, a little higher up. Here's where we were standing before in the previous picture. But now higher up, you see the, the cemetery and the path all the way down. And you get this idea that you're high on a mountain and you can look down over the city of Jerusalem. You can look down over all of the people who live in that city. And uh, it must have been quite a sight for Jesus to look down over Jerusalem, to know what he's walking towards, to willingly endure the walk down to Jerusalem and the things that would follow. And Jesus saw the city and he wept. The one, one of the two recorded times in Scripture. One was when Lazarus died. The other is when he looked at the city of Jerusalem as king. He looked at his city, his bride. He was walking towards his wedding and his funeral at the same time. And as he was going there, he looked at the bride and he wept. He just wept because he was sad. He cried. The picture of his humanity is displayed here. The picture of his priestly compassion for humanity. He wept for the lost people that were in Jerusalem. He wept for all of the generations that would follow that did not understand what was going on in that moment in time. I mean, Scripture says this, Would that you, even you, would know on this day the things that are making peace. He's saying, oh, Jerusalem, you don't even know what's going on. You don't even know what I'm about to do to bring peace to you. Would that you would know. And he wept for their closed hearts and minds and eyes. And he speaks about Jerusalem when he said, there are days when enemies will encamp against you. They're going to fight you. Your children will be affected. Your children's children will be affected. All because you don't recognize your king is here. All because you don't recognize what I am about to do for you. All because you don't recognize the glory of Jesus. He wept. He wept because he knew what he was about to do for the people who didn't care. We live in a fallen world, right? One that chooses flesh over spirit. One that chooses selfishness over um, selflessness. And one that does not submit itself to the king. We are not unlike Jerusalem. Our city... We can stand up on 3rd Street, you know, bypass up there and look down on the city. You ever just stand up there and weep for the city? You ever just look out over the entire city and weep because of the 7,000 people that don't know what was done for them? The 7,000 people in this city that haven't yet recognized Jesus as king? Go up there sometime this week. Just stand and look over the city. Ask God to give you that heart for the 7,000 people might be a good discipline every now and again to look down over that. We see, uh, we see Christ. We see him and we recognize him as king of kings. If you believe in him, he's your king. And we have a great hope and a great salvation because of that. For a king has ultimate authority over his kingdom. Um, he restores broken hearts and lives. Right? We've testimonied that with our own lives. Um, he takes broken down cities and he rebuilds them. We've seen that in scripture. He mends the soul and he sets upright the downcast. And this is the king that we serve. The king that wept for us and for the future generations. 
Isaiah 62 says this. It captures the picture of, of King Jesus walking into Jerusalem to be sacrificed for the world and in doing so redeeming the people of God. It says this, go through, go through the gates and prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway and clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth. So say to the daughter of Zion, which is Jerusalem, behold, your salvation comes. And you will be called a holy people, redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out. You shall be a city not forsaken. So we have this Old Testament passage which tells us that Jesus is coming. That a pathway is going to be cleared for him. They're going to brush the rocks aside so the donkey doesn't trip. They're going to clear the path to the city gates. They're going to lift Jesus up on a donkey. But ultimately, he's going to be lifted up on the cross as a signal, as a sign to all people. Christ listed up as a savior. And the salvation has arrived in that city. And it's because of the arrival of the king that the people are saved. Christ and only Christ is the one who fights the adversary for us. Christ and only Christ is the one who can conquer sin and death for all time, for all people, whether or not those people recognize him. He, he did the act for them. He went through the death for them. And now, currently, he lives in heaven at this very moment, ruling and reigning, interceding for us, encouraging us, and we give him praise and glory for that, right? We have hindsight. We know that Palm Sunday's here, and Good Friday's next. But we know that Good Friday is good, and that Easter follows, right? So we get to celebrate. But in this season, they didn't know. All they knew is that the king was coming, and then they saw the king crucified. But this morning, we remember the triumphal entry of the king of our lives, of the king who looked down over our city and wept, of the king who looked at our very life, our individual life and our heart, and wept for us. He wept for you and for your sins. And so he intentionally rode that donkey down. After he had that moment on the mountain with the Lord and he wept, he rode that donkey down into town, had a special meal with his friends, was betrayed by one of his friends, went to the cross willingly and died because he loves you as a king. The only king to lay his life down for his people. And so today as we celebrate, we worship the king who came humbly as a baby, taught the people boldly as a prophet, ministered to the needy like a priest, robed in splendor of our praises as king. But it's also that day of somberness because we look forward to the week, Good Friday, the Passion Week. It's called Passion Week because it's where Christ's passion is poured out for us. Nothing more passionate has ever been done on the face of the planet. So this morning we're going to sing some more songs. We're going to worship and we're going to stand and we're going to raise all palm branches and we're going to clap our hands and we might even dance for joy because our heart is filled with praises for our king. And I want to leave you with the words of Revelation. We've been from Old Testament to New Testament and Old Testament to New Testament and back again. We're going to close with this. They will make war on the Lamb. And the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. And that's us this morning. We are chosen, and so we will be faithful to God because he was faithful to us. Amen?
Let's worship him this morning. This is a day of celebration. So what I hope you do is I hope you take your palm branch home and I hope you put it somewhere and then I hope throughout the rest of the day you look at it and go, Jesus is king. I love him. I serve him. I worship him with all that I am. And in doing so, I hope you share some of that with some other people. Speaking of, we've got more Easter invites. So here's your benediction. Go share the love of Jesus and celebrate him because he's your king. And also invite people to Easter, where we want other people to know about Jesus the King. Amen? Amen. Amen. You may go in peace, but before you go, come get one of these.